You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, the 17th of May. I'm coming to you this morning from Doncaster, overlooking the race course here on a beautiful sunny day. Barely a cloud in the sky. Was here last night for the annual Thoroughbred Breeders Association National Hunt Committee Awards, which is always a heartwarming affair, notwithstanding my blundering through giving out the awards. Uh, some great stories, some very touching stories of dedication to the sport of horse racing. And the sale continues, the Goths UK sale continues just below where I'm speaking to you from right now. Um, What's in the news? Well, our thoughts turning to the Derby. It really isn't too far away now, the Kazoo Derby. Epsom Downs have announced a new chair who will take over the day after the Derby, Brian Finch. And I'll be talking to him a little bit later on in the programme. But Derby news yesterday, as I welcome in Lee Mottis, head senior writer from the Racing Post, about everybody's favourite jockey, Frankie Dettori. What's he done now, Lee? (laughs) Yes, and it's it's a story, Nick, that... I have to say, took me by surprise. It was the announcement from Alan Cooper, the racing manager to the Niarcos family, that Frankie Dottori will rise Pisbadil in the Kazoo Derby. Um, in doing so, he will replace the uh, former Irish champion apprentice, Gavin Ryan, who has been associated with the horse, won the Bally Sacks on the horse, horse trained by Donica O'Brien at Leopardstown last time. It was only in last Thursday's Racing Post that we ran a, a pastry story in which Gavin spoke of his excitement at riding the horse in the Derby, but he won't be riding the horse in the Derby. Dittori will. Interesting, obviously, on a number of levels this, Nick. For a start, it continues a trend. Um, and I say this with no criticism of, of Frankie Dettori uh, meant at all, but it's the third consecutive year in which a rider has been jocked off for Frankie to take his place in the derby. In that sense, Frankie is, has well, he already become the Leicester Piggott um, of flat racing in many ways, but certainly the Leicester Piggott of the derby. Two years ago, Tom Marquand was replaced from the Lingfield trial winner, English King. Uh, on that occasion, the owner, Bjorn Nielsen, obviously had a connection with Frankie through Stradivarius. Then last year, Adam Kirby was jocked off the Ed Dunlop train, John Leeper, just before the derby. Now, on this occasion, it had a happy ending, of course, because Adam Kirby then got on Adair, who won the derby. Um, and the, the man who missed out in that sense was Ashim Murphy, who would have ridden Adair had Adam Kirby not got back on, on Adair. On this occasion, um, Frankie Dettori will be riding his Badil. Um, I think it's interesting in the sense that I think most people, Nick, would have assumed that Dettori would be on one of the Aidan O'Brien trained horses yes. in the derby. John Gosden hasn't got a derby runner. Frankie last year actually was set to ride for Aidan O'Brien in the derby on high definition. Uh, only for Aidan O'Brien to decide that he'd only have the one runner, so high definition wasn't available to him. But on this occasion, if we assume that Dottori, sorry, that um, Ryan Moore will ride the, the Leopardstown Derby trial winner Stone Age, Frankie Dottori would have ridden, I think we can assume, changing of the guard, United Nations or Star of India. Now, the, the way I think that 
the, the valid auditing tends to work is that one would assume that Aidan would allocate rides outside of Stone Age to his team of jockeys, and he has a wide team of riders that he could use, uh, Shami Heffernan, uh, Emma McNamara, uh, Wayne Lord, and many others. But one would have expected the Tory would be on one of those horses. So it looks to me as though Frankie has looked at those horses, changing of the guard, United Nations, Star of India, and concluded that he believes that Piz Badil has a better chance of winning the race. Remember that Piz Badil is trained by the son of Aidan O'Brien. So there are connections through all these horses. So it is, I think, a major vote of confidence in the chance of a horse who will be seeking to give the Niarcos family uh, their first winner of the derby. They had Law Society for his second to Stepanka in 1985. They've had plenty of other runners in the past. Frankie rode one of them, Circus Maximus. So they, they have a, a rich derby heritage. They've, they've got a rich Epsom classic heritage too, having won the Oaks with, with light shift. There is nothing more they would love, I think, in flat racing than to win the derby. One would not be surprised to feel that thing that they believe this is their best chance of winning the derby, certainly for some time. And the booking of Frankie de Torre, I think, really is a major vote of confidence in the horse's prospects. Clearly, it's a shame for, for Gavin Ryan, particularly said, as you'd already spoken about, his excitement at, um, at riding the horse in the race. But I think you also have to look at the, the bigger picture. That is that the, the owner always has the right to pick who is going to ride their horses. That doesn't mean we can't be, be sympathetic for the jockey or if you wanted to criticise the owners for their decision. But it's, it's their choice. Gavin Ryan is an excellent young jockey, but it is true that he's never ridden a winner in Britain. He's never ridden a Group 1 winner, and he's never ridden at Epsom, one of the trickiest racecourses in the world. So I think you can understand what the Niarchos family have done whilst also being sympathetic for Gavin Ryan and say, Dottori's done nothing wrong. He is a, a, a jockey who is there to ride the best horse he can in any given race. And if someone offers you a ride like that in the derby, you'd be daft to turn it down. So I think the most interesting thing mm. in this story is that the Tory has clearly decided that Pisba Deal has a better well. chance of winning the derby than any of those three Aidan O'Brien trained horses. And that idea, Lee, that the derby could actually be a, a pretty full-size derby this year uh, was only fuelled yesterday when Joseph O'Brien, whose buckaroo, as you said, was second to Pisba Deal earlier in the season in the Ballysack Stakes, may well yet head to Epsom. He's in the Irish Guineas this weekend, but he's he's also in at Epsom and may yet head there. A decision to be made quite soon by Qatar Racing. Just to pick up on one point from yesterday in terms of horses going this way and that, uh, just as we recorded the pod, I said John Gosner would be making a decision about Inspiral. If, you, if you've missed the news the last 24 hours, he did make the decision, and it was as we expected. She won't go to Ireland for the Irish 1000. She will head straight to Royal Ascot for the coron- coronation stakes, but that uh, you, I'm sure, already knew. Right, Epsom Downs welcomes its new chair the day after Derby Day. The baton will be passed from Julia Budd uh, to Brian Finch. And earlier on today, I caught up with the incoming chairman, and I asked him a little bit about his own background in the sport. Good morning, Nick, and uh, and thank you very much uh, for having me. Uh, yeah, and thank you for the great uh, congratulations too. Um, it's it's an appointment that uh, I, I never dreamed of, to be honest, and uh, it, I'm, I'm terribly excited uh, about the opportunity in the future. Um, so yeah, it's 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 something that uh, that's that's really great. Uh, in terms of my involvement in the sport, Nick. Um, oof, 
I started going racing with my uh, with my dad as a young boy, eight nine years old, uh, back in Zimbabwe, which is where I'm born. Um, together with my younger brother, he was a passionate racing fan, and and as kids, he took us along, and uh, and and that's really where the love of the sport uh, started. Um, and um, you know, as I then entered, uh, you know, finished my education and entered uh, working life, I always dreamed that one day I'd have a, a share in a racehorse, and um, and, uh, and and I'm lucky enough to say that that actually happened. I, I uh, got my. My, my, my colours in 1996 uh, back in Zimbabwe uh, and uh, and my first racehorse then and uh, and as luck would have it uh, she uh, she only raced twice but won twice and and I think that was the hook and uh, and it's been a it's been a love and a passion ever since so uh, yeah it's gone it's gone on over a what's that a quarter of a century now and uh, and it's been great and and as far as the UK is concerned Nick um, you know. We've, I've had shares in small syndicates here in the past while I was working abroad, uh, but uh, I returned back to the UK with a family to live here full time again in, in in 2017 after after um, uh, you know a career abroad mainly and um, and I got, was lucky enough to be invited by the Jockey Club to join the Racecourse Committee at Sandown Park. Um, and I did that, and I, I'm still on the committee there. Um, and I then joined the uh, committee at Epsom Downs uh, in in March of 2021. Uh, and uh, and I've had a chance now to work with the team there for for close on 15 months. Uh, and in addition, of course, I'm a trustee on the at the National Horse Racing Museum, uh, which has been uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, seeing uh, what a great facility is out there, and, uh, and and how it how it captures the history of the sport from its from its origin. So, uh, so those are the three things that I'm I'm very much involved in. And and, and now this new appointment, which uh, which takes effect in June, and uh, and uh, I'm very excited about it. And it's quite a different role, isn't it, Chair of Epsom? Because it's it's not a race course that races very often and and really revolves around the the success of of one race so it's a it is a slightly different role to quite a lot of of race course jobs yeah yes it is uh nick and um i mean the, the race course races we'll have 11 meetings this year um i think by the act we can have a maximum of 16 um or could be 17 i'll, I'll need to check that uh in, in in the calendar year uh but 11 is currently programmed um, and it's it really is the build up to the Derby um, uh, and the Oaks. Of course, we must never forget that the Oaks is such an important race as well. So the two day festival is, is 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 really the highlight. And then there's the other races during the year, but they they very much centre around um, uh, local community uh, type audience. Um, you have the summer meetings, uh, obviously with with. The, some music acts in the evening, uh, so it becomes a far more local type event, like like a lot of race courses across the country. But but the highlight, of course, is is the fact that you have the the Derby trial in April, and then you build up to the the Oaks on the Friday, and then the Derby on the Saturday in June. You've been a, a passionate advocate of increasing uh, racing's d- diversity and inclusion. You're going to be the first black chair of a of a British race course. Is that something that you're particularly um, conscious of and the and the the way that it will be it will be viewed by wider society. Not a view that I'm conscious of, Nick, uh, but I, I acknowledge it. And uh, firstly, I'm very very proud to be uh, to be appointed as the chair uh, and uh, as the first black chair of, of, of a British race course. That that's you know it's a fantastic accolade. Uh, but the important thing for me in that is that. Um, 
um, others uh, in the wider world can can see that you know if you're committed and you're passionate about something and you, and you have the competence and more importantly you have a chance to gain access to to the um, uh, to the sport um, and the workings of the sport you can you can go as high as you you, you can you can ever dream uh, about doing and uh, and I'm evidence of that and Brian I see you so often at, at the races I, I know you're somebody who is not simply a a, a figurehead character you're someone who's going to get your hands dirty and get stuck in very much so nick uh i mean firstly i think the upside for me has been that i've been on the committee under under the leadership of julia Budd, who i really must give huge credit to she's she's absolutely fantastic and the job she's done steering uh the the, the epson business uh and the race itself uh it, during her, her her tenure has been brilliant uh, i think you are aware nick that uh, that this is the first year that the derby is being sort of relaunched under new positioning uh there's a lot more activity happening there was a lot more investment behind uh, the race uh, and, and, and the publicity before the race uh and we're all excited to see how that how that lands this year and, and and for me you know taking over from there you know I, I have a plan that's already in place by the committee and and on all we'll do is we'll we'll rework it and we'll enhance it as uh, we take some learnings from 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 this year's event so uh, yes hands dirty but uh, but something that will not be a chore it'll be a love and uh, and I, I know the committee feel that and I know for sure the executive feel that we feel we're at the beginning of something new for the derby uh, Brian Finch new chair of Epsom Racecourse is it fair to say, Lee, that, that Brian's got um, a task on his hands, as he intimated there, a sort of brand new strategy is being, uh, being delivered now at Epsom and for the London racecourses? Yeah, I, I think he has. Um, I, as I've referenced on the pod before, Nick, I live a, a six, seven minute drive from, from Epsom racecourse. Um, I love the place. I love the derby. Um, as, as David Yates was saying, so he does as well, we... we we're both huge fans of the Derby and want it to thrive. And I think the reality is the Derby hasn't been thriving in the way that we all would like it to um, in terms of uh, audience figures, TV audience figures, in terms of attendance on the hill and in terms of the general buzz around the Derby. It's not what you would want it to be. Um, certainly until maybe the last couple of years, you could have driven through uh, well, the last couple of years pre pre-pandemic, you could have driven through Epsom in the week of the derby and barely had any idea whatsoever that anything was taking place. There certainly isn't the buzz around Epsom in Derby Week that there is, say, around Liverpool in Grand National Week. Um, nor is there any real buzz in London around the fact that it is Derby Week. So I think if if Brian I think if Brian can work on on that with his team and of course on on the race itself they're in a they're in a good position in many ways they have a they have a committed sponsor in kazoo um they have a race with the very richest heritage one that this year will get a boost from being part of the platinum jubilee celebrations and we all have to see her majesty there at epsom on derby day but i think there is a job in terms of raising again the profile of our greatest flat race so it stands out it, it, it does stand out from the rest of the flat racing program, undoubtedly, but it's nowhere near um, the profile, say, of the Grand National. Uh, it, it's the, the, the concept of Derby Day has disappeared, and that's, I'm not raising the Wednesday-Saturday Derby debate, because I, I think it's on the right day. Um, but the, the, there is work to do, I think, to reinvigorate 
the Derby. And, and you mentioned the other London tracks, and there's clearly work on, on those two, although Brian's role uh, with Sandown is, is, isn't as uh, high profile as it is at, at, at Epsom. Sandown is a racehorse, again, that, that we love to miss, but it has got issues at the minute, particularly if you look at attendances there in the last few months. They have been extremely disappointing, as are some, some other racecourses, but Sandown in particular has been struggling. They have redevelopment plans there that they need to try and get through with the local planning authority. So, so work to do there, and although it's not one of Brian's tracks, work to do at Kempton as well, I think, there uh, as well. So um, a, lot of, a lot of jobs in, in Brian's in-tray. I, I know him through his chairmanship of the BHA's racing group, which I, I sit on. He's a very uh, hands-on guy who will want to do things. I think he's a doer, uh, not just a talker. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he how he fares over the coming years, and we wish him well. Now, some interesting news coming through from the South China Morning Post, which was subsequently tweeted on the jockey's uh, Twitter feed. Sylvester D'Souza is looking to have another stint in Hong Kong. Uh, I caught up with him a little earlier to ask him what his plans were and what had prompted the decision. Uh, well, and uh, I used to be associated with King Power Oxland now... I'm a freelance, and uh, I was supposed to go last winter to Hong Kong, and you know, we cover all the situation, the quarantine, and I just decide not going. But I hope when doors open, I'll be able to go. You know, uh, it's just thoughts in my mind, and uh, I haven't put the application yet. But uh, you know, I just have to submit again, and I hope to get in. You know, some point. First of all, let's talk about Hong Kong itself. What is it that you enjoy about it? What do you find attractive about the racing out there? Well, and obviously, all, the prize money is great, you know, and, uh, you know, when you have a chance to ride in a place like Hong Kong, the way the prize money is, and, uh, you know, we go around in Britain, like, you know, trying to make the numbers up sometimes, and, you know, and I find quite tough to get in the top horses, so, you know, and I enjoy ride over there. It's competitive and uh, looks everybody have a chance and every horse got a chance. The handicap is very tough. But if you put your horse in the right spot and, you know, and obviously we're all trying to make money, you know. Uh, do you feel that you're, you're at a bit of a crossroads at the moment and you need to do something decisive? You don't just want to let your career drift? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, obviously I get plenty of support in England from left and right centre, like, you know, from, you know, I ride from, from a big trainer to a small trainer, like, you know, on the low-class rating and the low-class races. Like, but I want to get on top horse at some point and, uh, you know, but I, I want to ride here for the season. And, uh, you know, that's thing I have in my mind to go there. Like, you know, if I go there, it's for the winter or for the beginning of the season, something like that. And do you, do you still feel good in yourself about what you're doing day in, day out? Do you feel like you're riding as, as well as you have done before? I think so. Probably the horse is a bit slowly at the moment, but I, I, I feel I ride as good as ever. Like, you know, you're all as good as the horse you ride at the end of the day, you know? Sylvester D'Souza there. I mean, Lee, I'm a, a huge fan of D'Souza, and I've often felt really that his his talent has been, yes, rewarded by the amount of rides he's had, and he's been multiple champion jockey, but hasn't really been commensurately rewarded with the with the top mounts, as he, as he alluded to there. With the best one in the world as good a jockey as Sylvester is, and he is very good indeed, 
He's never been one of those that generally is a go-to man for the top trainers in the big group one races when they have a, a seat to fill. He just hasn't had that that reputation. Some jockeys, like the Mick Canans, the Johnny Murters, they get this super sub reputation that when they're available, they are the the go-to the go-to jockey. Sylvester has never really had that. Um, so I think it's an interesting move that he would be looking to go to Hong Kong. And, it, and it's one that you can understand, but it does make the point you have to apply. Hong Kong is not a place where you can just decide you're going to hop over there and base yourself for, for five, six months. He, the Hong Kong Jack Club will need to accept him. It's like to be a very competitive uh, contest for applications to ride in, in Hong Kong for a permit to ride over there. So interesting that Sylvester D'Souza has put his hand up, but, but quite right that he's saying that it's no guarantee he'll be accepted. Ali, you and I on the podcast last week discussed uh, cashless racecourses and wondered between us whether actually we weren't just hacking people off that didn't need to be hacked off at a time when racing needs every customer it can get. Now, you did a little bit more research on this, a bit more digging, and you um, used your column in, in Monday's Racing Post to expand on it a bit more, and you've had a little bit of pushback as well. So where are we now? Yeah, I did, Nick. So um, when I was at Lingfield on uh, Derby Trial Day, I was approached by a racegoer there who expressed to me his um, frustration and anger that he wasn't able to use cash on the track there. I, I, I spoke about him briefly in my column last week. That caused another reader, a guy called Paul Walters, an eight-year-old semi-retired solicitor from Derby, to get in touch with me. And I spoke to him during the week. He is a guy who doesn't have any sort of, of cut. Um, he's, I say, he's a perfectly affluent um, guy. He doesn't not have a card because he couldn't have a card. It's because he doesn't want to have a card. Um, and he spoke to me and said that it's become, it's, he finds out that he can't go racing often when he would want to. He can only go if he's with someone who does have a card. His wife, Anne, has a card, but she doesn't like carrying a card with her on, on, on race courses. She doesn't feel secure doing that. And I think Paul's general argument for me was really convincing. He said it's annoying because it's so totally unnecessary. This is something that's been done for the convenience of those providing the service and to the inconvenience of their customers. This isn't a case of racecourses asking what the customers want. Instead, it's racecourses telling those customers that they must accept what we impose on you. And I don't like it. I can't see logic in it either. When you go racing, you've already got cash in your pocket. Uh, I, as I spoke about Paul and a friend of his, a 45-year-old electrician who'd been to Newmarket on 1,000 Guineas Day and had expressed his frustration because he'd gone with his wife and three other couples. They do have cards, but they also like to have a bet in the ring and they like to pull uh, a kitty together with their winnings and with their notes and use that when they go to the bar. They couldn't do that at Newmarket. So I, I spoke about this in the column on Monday. Nick, I did, I did point out the arguments why racecourses now have extended the, the, the COVID ban on, on, on cash. It's for a number of reasons that we did talk about in the, in the pod last week. The, the speed of, of cash of card payment is quicker. Research shows that people tend to spend more money when they're using cards as opposed to, to cash. The, the cost of uh, getting banks to uh, count cash and deal with cash floats has increased. And although racecourses don't like to re- reference this in public, there is an issue with pilfering um, on, on racecourses. They believe they lose a certain percentage um, from, from temporary staff on those tracks. That's not me saying that, that's them saying that. But I still think, Nick, the point I made in the column 
was it seems to me at a time when attendances are plummeting and they really are plummeting at a lot of uh, venues that the dips aren't minor they're significant at a time when that's happening why would you on one hand turn down potential customers guys like paul walters who now can't go racing to the art tracks he might have wanted to visit or the jockey club race courses that he would want to visit or the places like newbury or, or, or goodwood he can't go to those tracks now unless he's with someone who has a card and also why would you alienate existing customers who want to use uh, cash on the race course not least because the race course is so it always has been a cash environment because of the betting it seems to me a, a needless move to make. Now, some race courses that we spoke to yesterday, they gave their reasons why. We spoke to to Goodwood and to Newbury. Adam Waterworth, the Goodwood MD, uh, said that we haven't had a huge amount of pushback on our cashback pol on a cashless policy. The feedback we get from most of our customers is they don't carry cash anymore. I can understand the argument of not being able to spend winnings on course, but we're not seeing it. And from Newbury, there, Marcoms and Sponsorship Director Harriet Collins said, like many other major sporting venues, COVID has accelerated the move to a card-only policy rather than it necessarily being a result of it. Our policy reflects the changes in how general society now behaves. I think it's a short-sighted view. I think I commend those race courses that still allow cash. The perhaps the highest profile is York. They were allowing cash last week. They'll allow cash in the Saturday Sunday meeting because they don't want to alienate. Their, their, their customers um, and I think if race courses were still accepting cash it actually would be a way for racing to stand out there are so many places now that don't accept cash Nick whenever I go to a theatre now and I try to buy my program before the show I've got to use a card um, Paul Walters referenced the fact he'd been to Derby County Cricket Club and he wasn't able to use uh, cash there this would be a chance for racing to stand out and embrace its cash heritage whilst also saying obviously that most people will use cards because that's the way society's gone. But I just don't, I think it's short-sighted to say just for a little bit of ease in our, in our business dealings and a bit more money that we might make, we're going to turn down potential customers. It's, it, it's a disappointing move from my perspective. Well, it is Tuesday, so it's time to go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's and their industry-leading stallion reference, the free-to-download Global Stallion app, which features over 750 stallions from all around the world. Amongst them, of course, those standing at the historic Spendthrift Farm, which has been restored quite beautifully to its former glory and beyond uh, by the late B. Wayne Hughes, who we lost last year. I'm delighted to check in with the general manager of Spendthrift, Ned Toffey. Ned, just explain a little bit about the history of Spendthrift and and what Mr. Hughes accomplished and and what he what he took over uh, way back in the in the early part of this millennium. You know, I think he, he bought a place that had really fallen on to very hard times. Um, it had been a long time, really since the late '80s, that it had it resembled it. Uh, you know, its former glory only only in name. Um, uh, and so he took on a, a real project. This was a place that had fallen in, into disrepair. Um, but there was such a wonderful history here. You know, they, they had stood prior to Authentic standing here now, uh, nine Kentucky Derby winners. And, you know, they were really just a who's who of the stallion world. Leslie Combs that, that, that founded Spendthrift Farm back in 1937, um, had really, um, had sort of pioneered uh, stallion syndication in this country and 
and uh, just had a, you know, the stallion roster here was just a list of, of who's who. Um, they were they were the uh, you know leading consigner year after year. It, it was a real dynasty that that they had built um, here at Spendthrift. And again, late '80s, they had sort of fallen onto harder times. Um, a number of different ownerships uh, took a shot at, at at owning and operating Spendthrift. Um, and in 2004, when Mr. Hughes bought it, uh, it, it needed a lot of work, a lot of restoration. Uh, but it was something he really embraced. And, uh, you know, he always said he, he really appreciated the history here, but not until he'd been here for a little bit. And, and we got we got so much uh, expressions of gratitude from from locals, uh, particularly locals in the industry um, for, for restoring such a great place. So um, it, it's a wonderful place with a wonderful history. And it's it's been a great project to be involved in uh, in trying to restore it to something that resembles that uh, that former glory. And when you walk around the farm, Ned, and you, you see those those great names of the past that were there in the 60s and 70s and Nashua, Never Bend and Razor Native and Gallant Man and all you know, wonderful horses who've been breed shapers. How does it feel now to have the preeminent stallion in the United States, one could easily argue, into mischief standing? Um, a $250,000 stud fee, Sire of Life is Good and Mandaloon and so many more. Well, it's uh, we're very, very fortunate to have him. You know, and the remarkable thing, we bought him at a, uh, a two-year-old in training sale here um, for $180,000. Um, he was uh, from the first crop of, of Harlan's Holiday, who was uh, not necessarily on everybody's radar as, as being a top young stallion prospect. Um, he was certainly a horse that people liked and would give a chance to, but... but I, I don't think people held him in particularly high regard and and went into mischief um you know came here he, he had won one grade one as a two-year-old but his three-year-old year was a little bit disappointing and um and so he came here with a fairly you know a, a fairly uh inauspicious start um but but he got right off right out of the blocks with a couple of kentucky derby horses um, and he's just he's just taken off. Um, really, I think it, it just shows you that a, a, a top stallion can come from anywhere. Um, again, he wasn't even really particularly well regarded by breeders when he first came to stud. Um, and from a really relatively modest book of mares in terms of size and quality, uh, he's risen uh, from really the lower end of the stallion racks to the top end to where he's you know, three consecutive years now as the leading general sire in North America. So it's, I wish I could tell you that when we bought him, this was the plan, but <laughs> he, he, uh, he's been uh, tremendously successful and we've just been, it's been a, a pleasure and an honor to be along the ride. And Ned, when, when was the moment where you thought, well, this, this horse really could be a game changer for all of us and completely re reshape this farm and, and a, a portion of the breed? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it was probably a couple, a couple of years in. We, you know, once he got runners, every single year the stud fee went up. It was, you know, he was as low as sixty five hundred dollars at one point. Um, once he got runners, he was twenty, and then it was thirty and forty, and just every year it went up. And every year, he, you know, the lot of the people that really, that really dive deeply into these numbers. Um, you know, really uh, 
began to see these incredible percentages um, and percentages that you thought, well, they can't hold up as he breeds larger and larger books. And as they did begin to hold up, we, we realized, well, you know, we might really have something here. And and um, it's just, and, and of course, you know, he had probably a little bit of a label as more of a speed sire. And so then to get to get authentic to uh, you know would win the derby at obviously the classic distance um you know every time there was a knock on him he just he kept answering the question with another good horse and uh, he's it, it's really been remarkable and ned you're also standing his son authentic winner of the kentucky derby in in the pandemic year of 2020 and then followed up at keeneland in the breeders cup classic to what extent is he going to prove the air to to into mischief in your opinion um, obviously, by the time Authentic came to stud, uh, he was the son of a, a horse who had been a leading sire at this point. Uh, Into Mischief came to stud um, as, as again, as a horse uh, who was the son of a lightly regarded uh, horse who did prove himself to be a very good sire. So, you know, I think coming there, the beginnings of their career are quite different. Authentic's got a lot of advantages. He's, he's, he's got a leg up in a number of areas. Um, He's a different. He's a little bit different type of horse too. In mischief tends to stamp his horses um, from a marking standpoint, but you you do tend to see a number of different uh, sizes and shapes. And authentic, um, uh, you know, really has the look of a classic horse. He's a lighter, longer, scopier type of a horse. We we. Uh, um, We've got tremendous feedback from our breeders in terms of uh, this first crop of foals of Authentics. So hopefully if, if, the, if the looks hold up, um, we've got another good one. And then I'm, I'm very interested in, in Omaha Beach as a, as a young stallion, a horse of enormous talent. And his injury and niggles didn't really enable him to, to fulfill all of, all of that potential. But I know a horse that, that Mr. Hughes was, was very fond of for a, a, p- a particular reason. Just just tell us a bit more. You know, one of the r- amazing stories there is that we bought him from Rick Porter, that M- Mr. Hughes had, had helped um, uh, with his cancer treatments. Mr. Hughes was a, a, a lifelong supporter of children's cancer research uh, through funding, but also through his own expertise. And uh, a lot of that research uh, and a lot of the studies that Mr. Hughes was was uh, in the middle of um, were able to be put to good use uh, to help Rick Porter with a very, very advanced stage of cancer. And, and Mr. Hughes was able to help him gain uh, quite a number, I want to say six or seven more really good years. And and uh, so so I think, that, you know, the two of them really formed a bond through that. Um, I can't say Rick gave us a break on the price, <laughs> but but um, it, it was a, a great experience to get him. He's a wonderful horse, um, beautiful, you know, wonderfully talented, great mind on him, um, and a great pedigree. And so he's a, he's a horse that we're really looking forward to. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure, and and that friendship and rivalry between Miss Hughes and and Rick Porter, embodied in that you know enthralling and stirring Breeders' Cup distaff back in in 16 between beholder in the hues orange and purple and and songbird in the in the white and red one of the most memorable breeders cup races of all time um, that's a, a great tale of of true of true friendship and sporting rivalry ned what do you think the the key lasting legacy of b wayne hughes and the future 
uh, of spendthrift is? I, well, you know, he certainly has left a left a, a, a huge legacy for us, and I think you know, spendthrift. Um, there's a tremendous amount of history here, and a tremendous legacy, and a lot to live up to. Um, uh, you know, in the first place, and, and Mr. Hughes, I think, has only built on that. And so, you know, I think it's it, it's the kind of thing where the, the we would just like to try to be able to continue what what uh, what he started here. Um, Eric Gustafson, his uh, his son-in-law, uh, is is running the farm along with uh, his wife Wayne's daughter. Uh, uh, Tammy, and um, they are very, very committed uh, to continuing on uh, in the tradition that that Wayne started, and uh, we will we will plan to continue to add uh, top horses to our to our stallion roster. Um, I think this next uh, generation has, has um, shown a tremendous commitment to the broodmare band here, which is um, something that we were always. Um, uh, always, it was always important to us, but I think you've seen a tremendous investment in the last few years uh, from from Tammy and Eric uh, to 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 try to build a uh, a truly elite, world class uh, broodmare band here as well. So I think you know we we want to we want to um, uh, expand on the, the 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 job that we've done as breeders um, and just continue uh, the momentum that we've built. Um, in terms of our stallion roster, and uh, um, so that's you know that's something that that uh, we want to want to try to continue. Ned Toffey there, the general manager of Spendthrift Farm, in association with our friends at Weatherby's, another great tale from around the bloodstock world. And Lee Mottis head is still with me, and Lee has a tip for you. Nick, can I give you three tips? Wow. I'm going to give you two anti-post tips because uh, overnight Chris Waller uh, worked his two Ascot sprinters. Uh, Nature Strip and Home Affairs. They had jump outs um, at Rose Hill Racecourse uh, in advance of their their trip to to Ascot. They both went well. The plan is for them both to go to uh, the Royal Meeting, and I think they are real anti-post plays. As I talk now, you can get six to one about Nature Strip in the in the Kingstown Stakes. He's the world's best sprinter. Golden Powell will be up against him. But you look at the British horses that are racing in the in the King Stand, sorry, the Temple Stakes on, on Saturday, they are beatable. I think Nature Strip has a massive chance of that at six. His home affairs, you can get seven about him in the Platinum Jubilee on the Saturday. That will be his final start. He'll go to stud after that for Coolmore. I think they are both good bets at the moment, Nature Strip and Home Affairs. But more immediately, and whilst this might not be the most exciting race in the world, the, the Go Racing with Vickers.bet handicap, the 2.30 at Brighton today also provides a punting possibility. Zulu Girl, trumped by the excellent combo of Daniel and Claire Kubler, has an excellent record as well at Brighton. Two wins at the track last season under Nicola Curry, who rides the horse again after a pipe opener 24 days ago. I'm tipping Zulu Girl to win at Brighton, but with a long-term Nick on Nature Strip and Home Affairs for Royal Ascot. I love it. Um, and as we always say on this podcast, two trainers, Lee, are better than one. So looking forward <laughs> to seeing how uh, the Kublers get on later on. Good luck with the Royal Ascot double. We'll see you again tomorrow. That was Tuesday, May the 17th. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.